1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank ZipRecruiter and SaneBox for their continued support of SpyCast. You'll hear more about these great companies later, but first, let's meet our guest. So we are joined today with Dr. Jim Green. Who is the director of the Planetary Sciences Division at NASA? Um, welcome, Dr. Green. Thank you for being here. I'm delighted. Thank you. So, what we want to talk about today, other than your day job at NASA, <laughs> is you are an expert in Civil War balloon reconnaissance. We'll get to that in a second. Let's talk a little bit about your your day career. Okay. Uh, a little bit about, about your background. Uh, you received your PhD from the University of Iowa in space physics, is that Correct. astrophysics Correct. Or, or is there Well, a it's
0: actually doing um, a variety of astrophysics and planetary science and, and um, uh, even earth science from spacecraft. Okay, and you've worked at NASA
1: since right after you got your PhD right. in 1980. So More than
0: 30 years. You've actually. worked
1: your way up now as the, <laughs> into the director of this division. What does your division do?
0: Well, we manage at the highest level all our planetary missions, so any spacecraft that leaves the Earth and doesn't observe the Earth or doesn't observe the stars in the galaxy or the Sun that's planetary sciences so we have spacecraft at Mercury we have spacecraft flying around Mars in addition to the rovers so the rovers on Mars uh, opportunity and curiosity uh, are planetary sciences ones and we're gonna be flying by Pluto next year and we've got uh, you know, Cassini at and Saturn, and, and uh, we're flying around the asteroid belt right now.
1: You don't lose Pluto because it's not a planet anymore? You know, well,
0: so. <laughs> uh, in reality, uh, Pluto is a very fascinating object. We call it a dwarf planet because, indeed, it's a member of an entire population of objects well, from Pluto well beyond Pluto that um, are completely new to us.
1: Are you also involved with the Kepler system of, of exoplanets? Uh, you, know, you must have been pretty busy when they found the Goldilocks planet that's very Earth-like um, out of know, nowhere.
0: Well, uh, what they found was a planet that's uh, Earth-sized. We don't know if it's Earth-like exactly. Uh, but in planetary science, uh, we, we look at all the atmospheres of all the planets. We understand all the physics, and we go after... Um, about the geology and and ocean worlds. Um, And so what we're learning in planetary science is actually helping the astronomers as they find these exoplanets as to what to look for next. As an example, we took one of our spacecraft called Deep Impact. And it it, it takes um, measurements of light at various colors, various frequencies. And so we, we flew it well away from the Earth. And we had it look back at the Earth such that it was very small, you know, one pixel, we call it. And then we took a spectrum of it. And so that's a spectrum of a planet that has life. It's Earth. And so, it's, so it became the Rosetta Stone. We now have that spectrum. But as we observed Earth, what we found is that that spectrum changed. It changed based on how much land was there, how much ocean was there, how many clouds were there. So whatever we were looking at, we watched the change in that spectrum and then it changed again when the moon moved in front of it. So now we have a whole set of information that can inter- we can use in the next step of exoplanets, of finding Earth-like planets. If we can see the atmospheres and we can see changes and we can identify then ocean and land and maybe even moons. So we're ready for that big next step. It's really like imminent, like what the
1: intelligence agency mm-hmm. do with imagery intelligence, where mm-hmm. they, they look at pictures of things they know so they can compare them to things they find in the future. That's, exactly. That's fascinating. Exactly. Um, you're also, as we talked about, a balloon reconnaissance expert. Uh, what made you interested in Civil War era balloon reconnaissance?
0: Well, uh, it actually started very young. Uh, my, uh, my grandmother got me a beautiful picture book of the Civil War. It was by Bruce Catton. It was a, it was American Heritage picture book uh, for my 12th birthday. And she gave it to me, and she said, your great-grandfather, my father, was in the Civil War. And I, wow! You know, and so as I looked through the book and saw the battles, I wanted to know more about the Civil War. And I was really hooked on the Civil War from then on. And, and then of course as I got into um, spacecraft which is the higher ground which is doing remote reconnaissance which is all those things that are exciting to me as a scientist when I discovered that balloons were used in the Civil War uh, I just had to no know more so, so I've been yeah it was now. a natural transition I've been studying it now for about 20 years
1: so we got we've got pictures of it in the museum and maybe people have seen pictures of the balloons during the Civil War um, but these aren't the balloons you see, too. these aren't hot air balloons Correct. that you'd ride around on on a Correct. summer day. Uh, what, what is actually causing these balloons to rise?
0: Okay, so um, uh, these are hydrogen filled balloons. It's actually molecular hydrogen, turns out. Um, uh, this, this is very light, you know, and it can be um, uh, generated in the field. You know, Thaddeus Lowe, the chief aeronaut, was an incredible engineering genius. So he created a a method to generate hydrogen in the field with his gas generators. And so he also uh, invented uh, the type of balloon, a military balloon, the very first one that was ruggedized to be able to stand variations in weather. Uh, Also he he coated the balloons so that they were nearly what we would call tight, you know, so that the, the molecular hydrogen only seeps out. The importance of these balloons are once they're filled, they could last for three, sometimes four weeks. Ooh. And so they could observe 24 hours a day if they wanted to. And in fact, they observed, you know, sometimes 10, 15 hours and more a day. They observed during the day, but they also observed at night. And when they observed at night, they wanted to know where, where the uh, Confederate army was. And so when they would go up, they would count the campfires, right. okay? And so locations of where those campfires were and where they weren't, told them what roads the, the, the army is camped on, uh, also uh, the number of campfires, because they knew in a campfire you could get about 10, right. 10 Confederate soldiers around it, and so they could estimi- estimate army strength.
1: These kind of balloons actually predate the Civil War a little bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, the ideas go as far, <laughs> far back as the mid-18th century, I mean, after Henry Cavendish discovers hydrogen. Uh, very quickly thereafter, people realize that there might be some lift capabilities of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my research, 1780s was really the first flights. And even the, during the, uh, the French Revolutionary period, mm-hmm. they were used in battle, or yeah. at least used as reconnaissance platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really, as you mentioned already, that this, the Thaddeus Lowe's real innovation was finding out how to make hydrogen in the field. So it turns out that's why the French stopped, because they don't have the ability to do that. Um, Can can you talk a little bit about how these were integrated into the Union Army? I mean, you mentioned it a little bit, Um, you talked about Thaddeus Lowe also, but how does he convince the Union Army that this is a new innovation that can be beneficial?
0: Yeah, so at the outbreak of the Civil War, um, Lincoln was very worried about Washington, D.C. And the reason why is a a significant part of Maryland uh, was very sympathetic to uh, the Confederacy, although Maryland stayed in the Union a lot of a lot of people in southern maryland would, would have loved of um had maryland go to the confederacy and of course across the potomac is virginia and the rest of the confederacy and so lincoln always felt that uh... the confederate army could easily uh, uh, get across the potomac and and take control of uh, washington dc so he was really concerned about this the newspapers uh, also fed into the fear of, of um, an invasion from the Confederacy. Now during that time, early part of the Civil War, the Confederacy wanted to be left alone, and they hadn't been planning on any invasions of uh, of washington d c or the union. but, but you know that that wasn't well known. There was always that fear. and then so Lincoln was bringing in troops, but you know, sometimes that's not enough. And so um, many of the newspapers were also really producing glowing reports of, uh, well, these are the things you can do from balloons. And so that was causing a lot of aeronauts to stream into the Washington, D.C. area. In fact, um, Burnside from, uh, from uh, Rhode Island was so excited about uh, balloons, he contacted one of the incredible aeronauts of the era, James Allen, and encouraged James Allen uh, to join the 1st Rhode Island uh, infantry with his balloon actually uh, uh, James took two balloons and so they came down into the Washington DC area and so he as a brigade commander had his own balloon in addition to his infantry forces that was going on at the time. Uh, Low came down and tried to um, uh, get the army excited about what he was doing and found that he was not very successful um, and, you know, the army at the time was managed by Scott, uh, who wasn't Winfield Scott, who wasn't really up on the latest um, uh, balloon technologies, and, and, and so he wasn't that interested in it. But Low had a good friend here in the D.C. area, which was Joseph Henry. He Joseph Henry was the director of the Smithsonian at the time, and so uh, Joseph Henry was really uh, Lincoln's science advisor, and they didn't know each other very well. But he did take the opportunity to, to uh, take Lowe over to the White House, introduce him to, to President Lincoln, and had um, a conversation about how balloons could be used. And indeed, Lowe, who's not only a fabulous engineer, is he's quite the salesman. And he was selling Lincoln on, on, on the uh, importance of balloons. So Lincoln authorized, through Joseph Henry, about $250 to, de- to do a, a balloon demonstration on the mall. And so Lowe, who had one of his balloons with him, the Enterprise, uh, came up with one-upsmanship. This is the kind of guy he was. all right. And so he decided the best way to get Lincoln's attention and really demonstrate what a balloon could do was to fly a telegraph operator up with him from a tethered balloon off the National Mall, okay, right at the site where the Air and Space Museum is today, actually. And so Lowe went to um, uh, the um, gas works, and it turns out the gas works generate carbonated hydrogen, which streams through the town to turn on your gas lights. That's how you lit your house. When you walk into a house, you don't turn on a light. Right. You turn on your gas, and then you light the gas, and that's lighter than air. And so that was where the American Indian Museum is today. Okay. Okay. So it was very easy for Lowe to fill his balloon. Grabbed a telegraph operator, and even the the, the operator supervisor absolutely had to go along, and then and then uh, uh, actually hired a number of soldiers that were in the area to hold the tether lines, and he went up about 500 feet, and he sent Lincoln a telegram, and and in that telegram, the contents of that was all over the United States in terms of the newspapers. You could you know, get it in, the, in, in Philadelphia Inquirer and the New York Times. Right. And you know, and, and and Lincoln loved it and invited Lowe back over to the White House to discuss it. So Lincoln really knew the values of, of balloons and wanted it in, in the Army and actually forced forced Winfield Scott to take him on.
1: There's actually a story from later that year in September um, where Lowe is an innovator in another sense is that uh, he he ascended uh, to more than 1,000 feet near Arlington across the Potomac uh, and actually was able to telegraph intelligence about the Confederate positions all the way out in Falls Church, which was about three mm-hmm. miles away, mm-hmm. allowing Union guns that couldn't see where the Confederates were to fire on the Confederate Army without ever mm-hmm. ever looking at them. And he was directing that artillery Correct. fire. Um, really the first indirect fire in warfare mm-hmm. history.
0: Right. Yeah. You know, and he was very successful at that. He did that uh, actually a cross-chain bridge and just went into Virginia. And it was from that position uh, where he could actually direct the artillery fire. Now, unfortunately, he didn't have a telegraph with him at the time, but he used flags and he, used, uh, he would drop messages for, uh, off the balloon. They would go down little bitty guy wires and then the messages could be uh, uh, sent to, um, um, to uh, where the artillerists were. Uh, Lowe did that a couple times in the Civil War. He did it again on the peninsula. Um, And every time he did it, it was tremendously successful. It was was just fabulous demonstration of what you could do from the high ground. Now the other thing that um, is probably not very well known is uh, uh, Lowe was um, uh, asked to have one of his balloons, and he built seven of them, for the Army, specifically military observing balloons, to go out to uh, the Mississippi and observe um, uh, what was happening uh, up, and down the, up and down the Mississippi because the Union Army wanted to get down and, and cut the Confederacy in half. That was part of the, one of the major plans that the Union Army had. If we could take everything along the Mississippi, we split the Confederacy nearly in two. And so um, uh, he sent one of his best aeronauts, uh, who's John Steiner. Uh, John Steiner uh, spoke, uh, spoke broken English. He was still very German. And, and that was a, a problem, he had communication problems. But finally, Steiner was able to go up into a, a balloon and observe a major Confederate fortress called um, uh, Island Number 10. It sat in the middle of the Mississippi River and would not allow the Union to go by it. So uh, when, um, uh, when Steiner went up to see, uh, see the island, uh, he also noticed that the big mortars that were firing at the uh, at the island were missing it by several hundred yards, and so when Steiner helped direct the artillery, uh, Island Number Ten fell within another week or so. Blew open the uh, Mississippi and uh, uh, until they got down to to the, to the Vicksburg area. So um, uh, every time they used artillery spotting, it worked perfectly. What's truly amazing is that they didn't use it more. Right, I mean it seems like. <laughs> I mean, we'll talk a little
1: bit about all of a sudden it ends, and, and there's some, several reasons why, but no. it seems like this could have been a way to win the war very quickly uh, oh, and yeah. not get your troops in, in harm's way. You could right. just sit back, guide the artillery fire, and just blast away right. at the Confederacy. Um, speaking of rivers, and actually a great segue into what I was going to ask you about next, um, from my research, it appears as though they developed early aircraft carriers.
0: Yes, they did. Yeah, that was
1: fascinating. Actually, it was me,
0: believed man. to be the first aircraft carrier. Yeah, so uh, when, when Lowe finally became chief aeronaut, you know he could do no wrong. It was a blank check for him. So he told McClellan, who was then uh, took over from Winfield Scott, uh, that I need uh, 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 seven or eight balloons. And so McClellan allowed him to build these specialized balloons, and they were called the Union, the Intrepid, the Washington, the United States. You know, beautiful patriotic names, and he would paint them. They weren't gray, or they weren't blue, or they weren't whitish, and they weren't supposed to blend into the sky. They were supposed to be seen by anybody on the ground, okay? So the balloons provided a lot of intimidation. The idea was if you were a Confederate you could see the balloon, the assumption was, well, then the balloon could see me, right? right? And so uh, Lowe wanted that to happen, and and he was tremendously... Uh, effective indeed in in doing that. One of the other things he recognized is um, Lincoln indeed wanted to see observations up and down the Potomac. From a balloon at a thousand feet, you could see 15 miles. An army moves 15 miles in a day. So from a balloon, right off the bat, you can see an army coming. You'll have a whole day to take that intelligence and get ready for a potential battle. And that was just perfect. So then Lowe had the opportunity to have several stations up and down the Potomac, where balloon observations could be implemented, looking over in Virginia and keeping Washington DC safe, at least a day away from being safe. And he was tremendously effective. So he actually went to uh, the Navy Yard, um, where he actually had his gas generators built. and, and um, uh, got the approval from McClellan uh, to to have uh, a boat, a balloon boat, if you will. And so uh, he uh, ended up uh, selecting a boat uh, that was actually um, uh, taken over from the from Arlington. Uh, Lee owned it. Okay. <laughs> and the boat, The name of the, the the name of the vessel was called the G. W. Park Custis. Oh, right. And it was uh, uh, associated with the Arlington Plantation. And it moved material up and down the Potomac and, and um, uh, was used for quite a, quite a few years. Uh, but uh, Lincoln had, um, had the superstructure, ta- or sorry, Lowe had the superstructure taken off the top of it. He had it planked. And then from that flat deck, he could actually uh, put his gas generators on, on board, inflate a balloon and make an observation. And then, and then it was towed, and then it was towed. And uh, he used it actually quite effectively up and, down the, up and down the Potomac.
1: So aircraft could take off from a ship. Yeah, is, yeah. the balloon
0: right. could take off the from the ship. Fantastic. And, and that made it a portable observation platform too. Right. So the first time he really put it into effect, uh, was when uh, he established a balloon station at what's called Bud's Ferry, which is a, 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 um, down the Potomac, a, a fairways. Uh, a ferry is where you know uh, you could you would cross you would cross the Potomac, um, uh, where two roads on either side of the river met, and you had you had a ferry operator moving uh, materials back and forth, and so it was a perfect place to be able to set up a balloon station. And and uh, Hooker. Um, was placed in command of Bud's Ferry. And so Lowe took in November of 1861 uh, his newly created aircraft carrier, the GW Park Custis, had it towed down in that area, and actually made observations off it with the Balloon Washington.
1: We'll have more of the gym in just one minute, but let me take a moment to tell you about ZipRecruiter. As I've told you before, ZipRecruiter is a company that was founded by a group of guys who worked in the tech industry and with startups and realized the absolute worst thing about running an organization was the process of hiring people. When we need to hire a new person, we wanna get the very best people, and of course, who doesn't? But the process seems never ending, and it can take a huge amount of time. Time we here at the Spy Museum don't have as we try to run our current operation while planning the content for the new museum. The people at ZipRecruiter have the solution. So are you hiring? Do you know where to post your jobs to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. There's no juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, SpyCast listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's like free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. That's a little different than what was before. ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. One more time try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash SpyCast. Uh, I live in this area, as you do also, and just, you don't have that history that you don't right. understand. It's really right. interesting to hear uh, about right. all these this, this real innovative, uh, you know, truly the first aerial reconnaissance platform. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found also interesting from what I've researched is uh, the countermeasures that the Confederacy put into place. Uh, you couldn't hit it, when it once it was at altitude. The cannon just didn't have the opportunity so they shot at it while it was low to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the camouflage and deception plans that the Confederacy put into practice were, were pretty
0: innovative. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. If you think about it. Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, uh, they would go out of their way in troop movements to be hidden from balloons. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, when there are battle plans, an army is uh, uh, spread over a large area and different parts of the army called cores were to attack at certain times of the day. Not only did watches have to be synchronized, but they failed to do that most of the time. Uh, but um, uh, the ability to get your army in place before you made your, your attack was also critical. There's many battles that absolutely failed because of those logistical things of getting in the right place at the right time. And so um, if you weren't going to be observed by balloons, you had to make uh, your your trek along the road so that you wouldn't be observed and then to bring up your army, and you had to move them quickly. So so some of these movements were were really well out of the way. And in fact, several Confederate high-ranking officers hated the balloons for that purpose. And uh, uh, so that was, that was a critical element of the balloon uh, the balloon story. Well, Lowe made um, news all the time. He loved the reporters. He catered to the reporters. You know, so when the reporters would come up um, uh, and they needed a place to stay, he invited them into his tents. And um, uh, rumor has it that he fed them and he fed their horses uh, using government uh, supplies, which would be a no-no. In fact, he was investigated for that. Turned out he was exonerated. But in any event, um, what he would do then is, uh, in trade is take them up in a balloon. And they would write fabulous stories about, uh, about balloons uh, and their observations in it. And so, in fact, some of the most beautiful things written about observations are actually written by reporters that end up indeed in their columns on newspapers up and down the East Coast and just some really, really wonderful things. The problem is Lowe could take a reporter up from the New York Times who would then telegraph back his report. The next day or two it would appear in the New York Times, and two, year, two days later Lee is reading it. All right? All right? And that's because the soldiers love to trade papers. I want to read the Richmond Dispatch, and here's the New York Times. And so it was really quite obvious to Lee and, and, and his generals early on that the fabulous intelligence that was coming from the balloons, some of which gets reported in the papers, gave him pause about, wow, well, we've got to take that into account. So that's one of the reasons why they did their movements. But they also, as I mentioned at night, would, would house a series of, of, of troops in locations where they were forbidden to have campfires. Or they would create campfires, but not be in those areas, right. yeah, only they, because they knew the balloons were out there making observations that's great, of that area. information. Yeah. yeah, and so um, that was not well known. You know, the the, the Union c- couldn't figure that out sometimes, and so this was such a new set of technology, with with the latest information capability about it. But the ability for those generals to be able to assimilate what was happening, and then respond back was lacking. It really took, you know, several decades as you got closer to World War One, for them to recognize um, how to interpret the balloon reports. In fact, a lot of the criticisms that Low would get is that, well, he's not an officer; he doesn't know what he's looking for. And and it turns out Low made Hundreds and hundreds of flights was up with some of the the best officers. You know, in fact, uh, 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 Porter, Fitz John Porter, one of the most fabulous, uh, you know, uh, uh, generals in McClellan's army at the time was up in the balloon all the time. And he has, and, actually has a very
1: interesting story. He about does, the, uh, he does. I guess it's the first untethered
0: <laughs> balloon reconnaissance flight. For a general. For a general, Yeah, okay. for a general. But indeed, um, they're up there for hours. What are they going to talk about? Lowe is going to tell Porter how the balloon works. Porter's going to tell Lowe what to look for. Right. So Lowe actually had, and his aeronauts actually had the ability to, to create the intelligence needed the problem was from a commanding general point of view what are the questions we needed to know from the balloons they couldn't formulate them when you go up and you take the high ground and you have the whole countryside and you're looking at hundreds of roads perhaps in different directions you know going through fields and farms and, 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 and valleys and streams and everything about the area you you can't possibly report everything but if you had targeted questions i want to know what's happening in this sector over this period of time and uh, then then the balloonists could actually zero in on that and create the intelligence necessary that could be actionable so the problem really was the lack of real. Ability from the generals to recognize how important the balloons actually could be. And that ended up still being its downfall. It wasn't recognized, uh, as as, uh, uh, Lowe and his crew still used balloons well into 1863, how important the balloons uh, really could be, could be. hadn't been greatly important, other than the few things we mentioned. Um, uh, but uh, they still had uh, 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 tremendous opportunities, but because the generals were really closed-minded about it, um, they let the the balloon corps fade away.
1: It, it seems the Confederacy even tried gather oh, yeah. up. Um, and one for of sure. the interesting, relatively famous names I ran into was Porter Alexander, who people might know because he led the artillery at Gettysburg for the mm-hmm. Confederates. Right. Uh, he was an early balloon pioneer for the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. Um, what what made them run into issues? What what was their issue? Why didn't they not continue
0: their balloon you know, reconnaissance? Um, uh, there's a lot of, of uh, a lot to be said about uh, um, the cost of the balloon corps. It was an expensive proposition, but the way uh, the Confederacy implemented observations of, by Porter Alexander, um, who's a fabulous uh, fabulous individual um and, and played a ma- major role in many battles of Fort lee um, was very effective actually they um, they used trains they didn't have aircraft carriers but they used trains uh, and uh, they would fill their tra- they would fill their balloon with illumination gas at richmond which was sitting right next to the train yard and then put it on a flat car and then run it down the peninsula and then go up uh, in a tethered balloon from from there. And in fact, um, uh, uh, there's at least one major battle where there are one Confederate and two Union balloons up at at the same time. And so they're all looking down at the battle and looking at each other. (laughs) But um, the Confederate army uh, really um, also um, were more concerned about how the Union was using the intelligence than they were thinking how they could use the intelligence. Lee tried with the Porter Alexander to get some information, did get some good information, but then um, once they lost that balloon, the balloon was called the Gazelle originally. Um, it was made of um, um, a dress of silk that came from England uh, with beautiful patterns. Uh, it's a, uh, it was also called by, um, by the Union Army, the silk dress balloon but the confederate army largely called it the lady davis okay uh... but once they lost that balloon actually it was um... we um, uh, see it was uh, it was captured in, in, off, um, uh... off the james river on the boat called the teaser and one
1: of the when they're capturing ships i believe was the ironclad uh... the union ironclad the monitor yeah it was, the yeah, that was interesting yeah, yeah the
0: monitor and the montauk yeah. so uh... <laughs> indeed um... Um, when Lowe got a hold of that balloon, he loved it. He cut it up in little squares, handed it out to congressmen. It was really, you know, here's, here's, the, here's the Confederacy balloon, you know, and, 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 and he really made hay with that. Now, what's also quite fascinating is in the, uh, uh, the Battle of um, Gaines Mill, the Confederate, uh, Confederate Army overruns a balloon station, and Lowe had his men packed the balloons to get out of there but they couldn't get everything out and the confederate army actually captured two of these gas generators in that battle and they brought them back to richmond stored them in a warehouse and put um, uh, one of them on display in the square richmond square so that everyone could see you know that the balloons weren't as big a threat as as everyone in Richmond was all upset. You know, but you would go out during the day and you'd look up and you'd see a Union balloon. You would see one of Lowe's beautiful Union balloons. Now that was pretty scary. That means the army's not that far away.
1: Well the Soviet shot down Francis Gary Powers in the U two, put it on display. Yeah, that's the- Lots of same, parallels, same, yes, same right. basic idea.
0: So it was, it was a way to calm the population down, that you know we're, we're, we're still going to win this, we're still in control, and even though they're using these advanced technologies, we're going to overcome. So that's what that said. But the Confederate Army had portable gas right. generators <laughs> in their hands and didn't use them. So it's, it's still a mystery on why they didn't pick that up, but it's got to be the general lack of... of of knowledge in the the, uh, upper part of the military to really understand what balloons could do if you used them right. Right.
1: It seems like one of the best advantages of these balloons that we haven't talked about yet is what we call geospatial intelligence or understanding terrain Mm -hmm. and map making. That was a real weakness of the Union when the war began is the South not only had home field advantage because their population was there, but they knew the land and most northerners didn't really understand the land of the south. The balloons allowed them to revise their maps and to understand that terrain much better than they had before.
0: In fact, when the, when the Balloon Corps came into existence, it was put under the control of the topographical engineers. The whole idea for, from the Union Army is, uh, you know, those, uh, the Union Army is made up of people from Michigan, and, and New York, and Ohio, and they're coming in, and, and none of them had been in Virginia so they don't know what roads they want to go and where where they need to be etc and and so the topographical engineers would use the balloons a lot in fact on the peninsula they were up in the balloons all the time and they made fabulous maps or they made those maps from what they knew from intelligence but then corrected them from balloon observations and in fact you can go to the Library of Congress and pull out a couple books of maps Made by the topographical engineers during the Peninsula Campaign, that were largely done from uh, with balloon information.
1: They passed that information down and hand wrote out the maps.
0: Well, they would take up the take up the engineers. Oh, the
1: map engineers mm-hmm. would go up. Yeah, and that, that leads me to a mystery that I don't quite understand. Is um, I know Matthew Brady, the very famous Civil War photographer, was very interested in balloons, and he was friendly uh, with Low. Um, and pictures had been taken in the past from a balloon, famously a Boston of Paris. Why aren't there just reams of pictures of you know Confederate soldiers or Confederate right. from balloons? Right. You, know, you would think they would go hand in hand.
0: That's a really interesting topic, um, and there might actually be a few photos. And here's how it shakes out: um, the picture. The first picture from a balloon was done in Boston. Okay? And it was done uh, uh, in the uh, aeronautic group of King and Allen. And that's James Allen. The same James Allen right. that was in Burnside's First um, uh, Rhode Island uh, Infantry. And the same James Allen that when Lowe got to the peninsula, he hired him. He hired James Allen because he sent John Steiner uh, to the Mississippi. So he he was down an aeronaut and brought James Allen on. Well, James Allen, uh, I know, was a big proponent of, hey, let's get a camera. Uh, and for whatever reason, Lowe hesitated a lot in that particular area. There were proposals that came into the Army about here's how a camera could be constructed and actually flown in a balloon and take images. Uh, but Lowe uh, scoffed all those. Now during the Peninsula Campaign, which is largely the summer of 1862, uh, the uh, 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 McClellan's army uh, enters, um, enters the peninsula in, in the March time frame and stays all the way into August. So a significant number of battles fighting outside of Richmond low gets look, uh, malaria and so in july sometime low goes back to the united states to recoup and james allen takes over uh... the balloon corps and so he now is um, is the chief aeronaut uh... even though lowe's father who stays with the group uh, is, the, uh, is the administrative head uh... allen really was there so. Um, one thing about Allen is, although he was uh, um, a, an aeronaut all his life, you know, uh, whereas Lowe was in and out of it, and this was the most important time for Lowe to be an aeronaut, um, uh, Allen was a very was not as prolific as Lowe. He didn't write about his experience all the time. So we don't know a lot about what happened uh, during that month or so, month and a half or so, that James Allen ran the balloon corps. But we do know this. When the balloon core was pulled off the peninsula and brought back in August, back to, um, back to Washington, D.C., there is a list in the National Archive of what was um, uh, in the balloon core, and in that was a whole set of photography equipment. Okay?
1: So those pictures might be somewhere.
0: They might be somewhere. And so, in a way, that's sort of the holy grail. If, if we could really identify... Um, uh, images or, or you know, uh, some some letters or diaries which uh, which state that the that uh, photography was done. Uh, that would that would be wonderful. But my bet is it was tried. It was tried. It may have failed, but I bet it. Tri- I bet I bet Alan tried it. He was hot to do that.
1: Before we continue talking balloons, let me ask you a question: How many emails do you have in your inbox right now? 100, 1,000, 20,000? If your email is anything like mine it used to be, the answer is too many. But here's the thing. Even though I knew I wanted to do something about it, I didn't know how. I knew I'd miss something important if I just deleted them, and man, that would have been awesome. But there are too many emails to go through one at a time. Then I finally learned the secret to reaching inbox zero and taking back my email sanity. It's called SaneBox, and I can't recommend it enough. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all the trivial stuff into a different folder so only the messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all the junk so you can focus on messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. This is so good. There's also sane reminders. SaneBox automatically reminds me when I need a follow-up email so nothing falls through the cracks. You can also snooze emails. It's a great way to defer or de-emphasize less urgent emails, and I can read them later. What's cool is that SaneBox works on top of your existing setup. You don't have to change your habits by creating a new email account or downloading a new app. SaneBox just makes your existing one awesome. Because we could all use more organization in our life, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit sanebox.com spycast today, and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. Look, you don't even have to enter your credit card information unless you decide to buy. So there's really nothing to lose. Check it out today and let me know if you love the black hole and reaching inbox zero as much as I do. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash spycast. So there were, there were times when the balloon corps itself had a direct line to decision makers back in Washington during battles. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure.
0: Uh, low during the Battle of uh, Fair Oaks, had up with him a telegraph operator. And so he would observe what was happening uh, right down on the ground. And then that was being uh, sent back to McClellan's headquarters. And McClellan had the line that went back to the War Department here in Washington, D.C., right back to the telegraph office. And so as the story goes, it's been reported this way in New York Times, and I haven't been able to verify every point about it, but indeed... um, Lowe was making these observations, and Lincoln and Stanton sitting in the telegraph office office in Washington, D.C., a hundred or more miles away, was literally listening to the battle unfold from the balloon in those observation telegrams. And although I don't know if there was any chatter back and forth, and Lincoln and Stanton were only in the listen mode, indeed it gave them an opportunity to be able to observe what was going on in real-time. Now real-time information is critical in intelligence decisions. This happened in 1862. Almost a hundred years later, in 1962, Kennedy is looking at the, the aerial photos, the YouTube photos of the missiles coming into Cuba. Almost you know, in the same way, Get, getting near real-time intelligence, being able to see what was happening and what was unfolding, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Same basic concept. Yeah, it really
1: makes Lincoln uh, able to be a real Commander-in-Chief, because he has
0: this real-time information about the battlefield. Um, well, Lincoln uh, loved technologies, he really did. You know, he wrote it. He, had a he had his own patent uh, of a boat uh, to get over a sandbar, actually. Um, so, he loved uh, he, he, he loved this kind of stuff. He spent an inordinate amount of time in the telegraph office, He'd walk across the street into the Weiner building, go up the stair, walk into the telegraph room, and sit down and, and, and they would say, okay, this is the stack you haven't read, and he would literally read what was happening you know, from these armies uh, in, um, in, in Missouri, in, in Kentucky, in Tennessee in addition to what was happening in Virginia you know, and, um, uh, 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 and, and of course um, uh, in Pennsylvania and, and North and South Carolinas. So uh, he really was uh, using the telegraph in a modern way, he really was obtaining that atel- intelligence from those remote locations and getting a sense, a feel on a daily basis of how well things are going. You know, are we really winning? And so uh, his insight uh, was indeed as a chief commander. He was getting the intelligence to understand the entire layout of the, of, of the war.
1: Hydrogen had been used even after the war, certainly, in balloons. Uh, I guess the, the reason that people started moving away from it is a very famous incident uh, that happens in the early 20th century. It, it wasn't the Hindenburg, a hydrogen-based blimp. I mean, it, 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 Hydrogen became incredibly difficult and flammable to work with. Yeah, it turns out
0: it wasn't too long after the Civil War, the French decided, hey, let's find out if uh, we should be reintroducing balloons into our our military. And of course, uh, um, uh, they gathered all the information they could from the the American Civil War. You know, there were French observers in the Army. Uh, and, And so they created their own little balloon corps themselves, and so they they launched balloons uh, with hydrogen, and then they would fire their cannon at them, and they blew them up, and that ended it. Right. So, not too long after the Civil War, the French realized, hey, this is not a good idea. Okay. So parachutes weren't invented. You didn't jump out of a balloon with right. a parachute. If you got hit in a balloon, you were going down. It was death. Uh, but indeed, uh, 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 Lowe and his crew were really quite lucky. Now in the in the three years or so that the balloon corps was in existence in the Union Army and they made well over 3,000 flights I mean they would make 10 and 11 flights a day and sometimes have three or four balloons even near one battlefield and and all seven of them sometimes uh, were deployed up and down uh, the Potomac as I mentioned earlier and so um, uh, with that many flights how come there weren't any accidents as you mentioned earlier as the balloon goes up the first 300 feet is a killer, so they would, the Confederate army would be on the wait, waiting for the balloon to go up and just pour artillery and shots at it. And in fact, there's a number of stories for which uh, shells actually went between the gondola and the balloon, you know, through the webbing uh, uh, that 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 was holding the gondola uh, 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 to the balloon. But as I said, they were very lucky. However, there was one accident, and that accident occurred. Uh, right after Chancellorsville, and uh, here's where uh, Lowe had actually quit the balloon corps and went home. Uh, it, it was turned over as chief aeronaut to James Allen. By that time, James Allen, uh, Low actually had hired James Allen's brother Ezra Allen, and so uh, 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 at uh, Chancellorsville, at the end, it was just Ezra Allen and James Allen as the as the as the uh, two major aeronauts. Hooker wanted observations, demanded that there be observations. And so um, Ezra went up in, uh, in the balloon Washington and uh, you know these um, uh, tethered lines would go a thousand feet. and the story goes that the entire thousand feet was let out and he was no more than 500 feet in the air. Hmm. So the balloon was being blown by an enormous wind you know which is really pushing the balloon back to the ground. And that was so strong that it actually ripped the seam of the balloon and so the so the so a, a huge seam was ripped the gas was uh, being emitted rapidly and the balloon was going to rocket it down to the earth and even at 500 feet it's uh, uh, you know not survivable in general but the group that was holding on to the tethered lines was the fourth main and the fourth main had been with the balloon core actually quite a bit and they were really expert at it and so they recognized that if they ran up wind with their lines then the balloon wouldn't come straight down but actually would come down in an angle and glide down and that's what they did and Ezreal survived that and they repaired that balloon and that balloon was used even after the war for many years well,
1: there seems to be an unbelievable amount of innovation with just this one relatively small. You have innovations in, in, you know, aeronautics, you have innovations on the intelligence side with imagery intelligence and signals intelligence and geospatial intelligence. I mean, across the board, this is a collections platform that can do almost everything, certainly more than you you associate with the Civil War Mm -hmm. as intelligence. Um, And what I found really interesting, and this is not the Civil War, but we still actually use balloons today Mm -hmm. in many combat operations in Afghanistan. Now they're unmanned, we're not sending people up there but they're still acting as, um, with cameras and sensors and other things. I mean, this this technology that was developed was so innovative that it's still not obsolete today.
0: Well, NASA even uses balloons. We use balloons, uh, uh, high-altitude balloons, to be able to get well above the atmosphere, such that we can, uh, but not leave the Earth, we can't leave the Earth with a balloon, but, but get above where most of the atmosphere is at, and that allows us to look out into space at wavelengths of light that don't actually make it to the ground. And those are really important flights. And we, we do set many of those actually a year and a half or for nearly most of NASA's life. But even the human exploration portion of NASA uses balloons. And their weather balloons or their wind balloons, what they do is they'll launch balloons at a certain height, to be able to gain the information to know the weather conditions before they launch.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. You know, you can you you want your you want your shuttle or your rocket or uh, you know to go uh, un, unimpeded through the atmosphere. And some of these wind currents can be extremely strong. Uh, and so you end up with wind shear and all kinds of problems that you know you want to avoid that. And so you get the information literally from balloons and gather that data and then say okay, we're ready to launch.
1: So you're part of a local group of, for lack of a better word, reenactors who reenact these balloon reconnaissance missions. Is that right?
0: Yes. Uh, I, wouldn't call, I wouldn't call it a, um, uh, an extensive group, but we have a nice little core group. Um, I portray James Allen, and also I'm in period dress. Um, Kevin Knapp is uh, Thaddeus Lowe, and he is just perfect for that. Um, we, we do actually launch small balloons. We've been on a whole variety of uh, battlefields and we've been in many different events. In fact, um, during the, uh, the 150th uh, celebration of Chancellorsville, we actually launched a particular balloon uh, uh, when the reenactment was going on, uh, which just, the pictures of that were just perfect. It was a, actually not a huge balloon. It was a very tiny balloon, but we were pretty close to the battlefield. And so we had it up, and, and, uh, and it was, you know, everything about it was just right. So we really enjoyed that. We've that's been really, doing that now for a year and a half or so. That's really
1: living the history, because you get a chance yeah. to see what they saw that day on the battlefield. Right. And that's, that's something a lot of people who study intelligence don't get a chance to do, is actually go where their predecessors were during that time. That's absolutely fascinating.
0: Now, just recently, uh, I was at the dedication uh, for... Um, recognizing, you know, the state of Virginia recognizes the importance of Pohip Church, uh, not only from the history of the fact that it was a church that Washington built and went to, but also it was a fabulous balloon station uh, where Lowe went and made some important observations that showed the retreat of the Confederate Army, which allowed McClellan in March 1862 to launch his uh, Peninsula Campaign. Lowe, also from that location, uh, tested balloons. He had two very small balloons that he built, the last two, the Eagle and the Excelsior, and and those were one-man balloons that you could quickly inflate and get up and and make an observation very quickly um, and were just perfect balloons for that. And he tested those and and got them working uh, at, at Poet Church.
1: Well, it's good to see that they're starting to get some recognition.
0: It really is. It took
1: 150 years, but at least they're, they're there. It was a fabulous, yeah. uh,
0: fabulous little celebration.
1: Fantastic. Um, is, is there any, any contact information for your reenactment? Is there a website for your reenactment group? Is there a way that people who live in the neighborhood can find out when you're going to be uh, doing something next?
0: Yeah, typically what happens is when, um, uh, when, a, when a notice of um, a reenactment will occur, they will list the units that will, will be there. And, and, and if, if, if that's one that we can make, then you'll see Thaddeus Lowe's Balloon Corps. Okay. That's really the best place.
1: Again, we'd like to thank ZipRecruiter and SaneBox for continuing to support the SpyCast family. Remember, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com SpyCast. And visit sanebox.com/spycast today, and they'll throw in an extra twenty-five dollar credit on top of the two-week free trial. Again, that's s-a-n-e-b-o-x.com/spycast. That's absolutely fascinating, Dr. Green. I I appreciate you coming here and talking to us about this. This is uh, this will really make a difference for for us in this museum because uh, it's information that we know. It's so integral to the intelligence picture of the United States and of the Civil War, and of you know, anytime talking about aerial surveillance is an integral part of that story. So I appreciate you coming and talking to us today. Uh, My I'd like to uh, thank you, but from the International Spy Museum, and uh, uh, please come back anytime. Uh, and My we, pleasure. Uh, absolutely, thank you very much, sir. Thank you for joining us on Spycast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion. You can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.